All right. Well, as we do now, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. To the Word of God. If you have your Bibles or an app or a scripture journal, make sure that you have it open to the book of Philippians. You can see on the screen that we are going to be in Philippians chapter 1 and picking up in verse 27 through verse 30 this morning. That will be on page 980 if you're using one of those black pew Bibles around the room. <clears throat> now, before I, I pray uh, and, and really look at our text this morning, as I always do, I want to just kind of to be able to sh- let us see why is this important for us to look at? Why is this important for us to look at? And I want to begin by telling you a a not-so-secret secret about me, okay? And that is, and this is, and I'm telling you this because football season's right around the corner, praise God. I'm a big Green Bay Packer fan, okay? I'm a big Green Bay Packer fan. They're a team, in case you're not familiar, a team, part of the National Football League, and it will not be uncommon for me to be trying to watch a Packer game on, on Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings, Monday night, what have you. Now, <clears throat> The reason why I, I bring that up is because being a Packer fan is just a part of, of, of who I am. And, and what I mean by that is I'm a Packer fan because my last name is Wurtko, okay? So being a Packer fan to, to my family was just a part of, of bearing the name Wurtko. When my when, you know, when my family and my ancestors basically migrated over from Germany and settled into Wisconsin, uh, they obviously became Packer fans. That's where they, they are found. That's where the team is. And, and I remember um, my dad one time telling me, hey, Luke, you are going to be a Packer fan. You're going to be a Packer fan. If you do not want to be a Packer fan, just know that you are renouncing your last name and you have to move out. I was like eight years old when this conversation happened, okay? But it was just part of being in the house, being a part of the family. It was life in the Workgo house. And, and there was a couple of things that basically made Workgo children Workgo children, not only being Packer fans, but also we had to answer the phone a certain way. We also had to clear the table after dinner. If it snowed, we were expected not only to shovel our driveway, but every single driveway on our block. Okay? That was expected. That's what it meant to be a work go. Okay? You know, my, my mom and my siblings are in this room, and I'm, I think you agree. That's, that, that was part of, of what it meant to bear the name, to bear the name. Now, none of those things earned for me to become a work go. That was just me living out that work go name. Okay? And what I think what we're going to see in our text this morning is Paul do something similar. Is he's going to start talking about what life in the gospel actually looks like. What is life for those who call themselves Christians? Those who have believed in the gospel. What are markers of that reality? What is a mark of that life? What is a mark of the life in the gospel? That's what we are going to be looking at this morning. So if you guys do have um, your spot there, make sure that you are in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And let me just pray for us really quick, and then I'll read for us our text. But just join me as I pray for you, and I ask that you pray for me. 
Well, Father, we just want to take a moment before we read your word and just remind ourselves of the hope that we have in you. God, I pray for every single one in this room and those um, who are, who are listening online, not able to be with us this morning, that the Holy Spirit, that you would allow this word of yours to just be illuminated in our hearts. That whether we're new to the faith or we've known you for a long time, Lord, that we know that you have designed our hearts and our minds to just be able to, to, to reflect and to grow by listening to and reading what you have done. And God, I pray that you would use this passage of scripture for that endeavor this morning. God, I pray for our kids and our teachers as they're just teaching our, our youngest hearts and this building about the great promise that they have in you, Jesus. That they would, they would see that because of your work on the cross, that they can come to you. That your presence is not something that, that they have to go look for but simply know that it's something that, that you have given to them based off of what you have done, not anything that they have done. So God, help us, help us all just know that reality. I pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter in verse 30. It reads... Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29 for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we are thankful for God's word. All right. <clears throat> so I think in these four verses, we see Paul just starting to unpack what does life in the gospel look like? And I think this week and next week's text, which we're going to look at, Paul is focusing on what are those markers. And for this week, I think he's focusing on what does it look like to, to live in light of the gospel to a war world that's watching. To those who are outside of Christ, what does that look like to them? What does it look like to peer into the life of a Christian and say, this is what I see. This is what I see in them. This is what I see that they believe. This is what I see what's important to them. And so, as a reminder, Paul is writing this from where? From prison. From prison. Right? He's writing to this church in Philippi, which he helped plant a few years prior, and he's giving them this pastoral wisdom. Pastoral wisdom. Now, last week, we looked at a, a very popular text where Paul made mention that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we walked through how that's just the, the gospel riddle in which, which Christianity is. That when you live, you get to live for somebody else, for somebody else's glory. And that's good. But even to die in this world for the Christian, that is gain that no other person can claim. It's not loss, but it's gain. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's focusing in, but if you live, if you live, 
if God has not called you home, Christian, then what does your life look like? Well, it's meant to be lived intentionally. Intentionally. That's why in verse 27, you'll see how Paul begins with only. Only. Now, other translations have it uh, as let like, the first things be or first things first. See, Paul is trying to just take the idea that he's talking about how to live as Christ, to die as gain. But if you are living, focus in on this. Focus in on this. Because your life is meant to, to be lived purposely and intentionally. So Paul is saying, live or let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So if you are living, the goal is to let your life be worthy of the gospel. Now, I think that takes a little bit of unpacking. Because at first glance, that may sound like, okay, well, does that mean that my, my life is, is somehow going to result in the gospel? Is somehow the way that I live my life going to allow the gospel to be true for me? That it's up to me and how I live in order for me to be chosen by Jesus and then be able to see and hear and understand what the gospel is? Is that what Paul is saying? I don't think so. Because what is the gospel, church? What is the gospel? It's good news. It's a proclamation. It's the good news of what Jesus has done. The whole story of the Bible is pointing to the gospel that despite our rebellion, despite how even our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed, turned their backs on God, and we have fallen suit, that we have decided that, you know, Lord, there's, there's things that we think we can do better, that we don't need you, that we don't have to trust you in certain areas, that we can trust ourselves and that we have all sin. That's what the Bible calls sin. It's this rebellion against God and his holiness and his rules. That we've all disobeyed him. But the good news is, despite all of that, despite all of that, what has God done? God so loved the world that he sent his son. That Jesus, who was fully God, got off his throne and then came and became a human. What theologians call the incarnation. So we celebrate at Christmas, right? Is that God has come to live amongst us. That God has come. And why did he come? So he could live. Live a perfect life. A life without any sin. Never rebelling against God and his rules. We, we couldn't do it. None of us. None of us could do that. We know that about ourselves. But yet Jesus came and lived a life we couldn't live. But what happened to him? What happened to Jesus? This is part of the good news. This is part of the gospel. That then Jesus took his life and he went and died a substitutionary death. He went and was nailed to a Roman cross for his sins? No. For our sins. Right? The Bible calls this substitutionary atonement. That God was taking our place. He was becoming our substitute to atone for our sins. Because God being a just God, he could not let sin go unpunished. But Jesus said, no, I'm going to take that punishment. I'm going to take that wrath. And so he allowed himself to be hung upon a cross. And he absorbed the wrath of God for sinners like you and I. Church, I know that many of you have heard that gospel many times. But I think it's fair for all of us to remind ourselves of that every single time we gather together. That we don't come worship a God who is passive, who doesn't care about our reality, doesn't 
care about what we have done, but actually cares so much that he was willing to die for it. And so if that's the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose conquering Satan, sin, and death, and he ascended back to his throne and then gave the church this mission to now go and proclaim that good news, that people can no longer need to atone for their own sins, but turn and trust in the one who has. If that's the gospel, then is, is Paul saying that we have to earn that? Is Paul saying that we have to earn that? That we have to somehow make ourselves worthy of that? No, that's not what Paul's saying. Because this is good news. Not about what we do, but what, about what he has done. So if you look back at verse 27, then what is Paul saying? Of let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What Paul is saying is, let your life show the worthiness of the gospel. Let your life be reflected of how much you actually value that good news. Is that good news for you? Because if it is, then your life is going to reflect that in some ways. And we're going to talk about that. Even in, in your Bibles, you might have even a footnote at the end of verse 27 that points out that what Paul is actually using is the language of to be a citizen of the kingdom. Even Paul is saying that let your life as a citizen of the kingdom, as someone who's already been redeemed by God, redeemed by Jesus, bought with a price, let your life then be worthy of that reality. Show the worthiness of that gospel because you are part of a different kingdom. So you live a life that reflects the family to which you belong to. Not to become a Christian, but because you are one. Because you are one. As a citizen of the kingdom. You know, one of the passages that talks about this reality so clearly is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Let me show you this. It should be on the screen. Where Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This idea that when, when God saved you, when you turn from your sins, which the Bible calls repentance, and you've turned and you trusted in Jesus, not just as being your Savior, but also your Lord, also your God, it says that you are a new creation. So you no longer have to do the things you used to do because you're not the person you used to be. That you're a new creation. And friends, this is so important. This is so important because the Bible then never tells us to fake it till you make it, right? The Bible never says, hey, just do things outwardly, right? Put on a show and then maybe that will, that will be true inwardly. What you do outwardly will then impact what you do inwardly or who you are. That's not the gospel. That's, that's not Christianity. That's every other religion. If you focus on outward deeds, then it will reflect an inward reality. But for a Christian... What we do always flows out of who we are. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get at. He's like, let your manner of life then be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy that you're a new creation. Demonstrate that. Demonstrate that to a watching world. So we live out what God has done inside of us. And so Paul is encouraging the church this morning let your life be worthy of the gospel.
show the gospel, show, show a watching world how much the gospel means to you. Because if Christianity, and here's the truth, church, if Christianity is just a, a, a moral framework or a philosophical agenda to you, so you just find yourself subscribing to at this time, then you're never going to be able to show the worthiness of the gospel. You're never going to be able to show the worthiness of the gospel if it's just a moral agenda, if it's just a philosophical framework. The gospel is so much more than that. That good news of what Jesus has done impacts every element of your life. And for good reason. Let's keep looking. Look at verse 27 again towards the end. And then Paul says, so that, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So I think what Paul is going to start doing here is unpacking what does that look like so that, so that whether I see it in person or I'm hearing from it, I will be able to, a watching world will know that your life is showing the worthiness of the gospel. And what are some of those ways that it shows that, right? What are some of the ways that we actually demonstrate that then to a watching world? That's where Paul's going. So what does he say first? that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So, so to show the worthiness of the gospel is also going to be dependent or at least reflective of how we stand together then. How does a church stand together? How do brothers and sisters in Christ then stand together? And Paul's language here is one of defense, right? That you are standing, that you're holding your ground. You're not letting culture, you're not letting politics, you're not letting affluence be what brings you together as a church, but you're letting the Spirit of God bring you together as a church. That's the ground on which you stand. Because we know this church, we know this, that it's not our ethnicity that brings us together this morning, it's not our socioeconomic status, right? It's not, it's not that, you know, those affluences, it's not our education level, it's not even our music preference. It's the Spirit of God. It's who God is who brings us together this morning. And here at Carson Valley Bible, I like to use the language, and, and the other elders like to use the language too, of that we're a gospel-centered church. That we're a gospel-centered church. And what do we mean by that? We mean that then that, that news of the person and work of Jesus actually drives everything what we do as a church. That it's not, the gospel is not just the, the starting point of the Christian life. But rather, it's the wheel in which all of the Christian life turns around. It's at the center of all that we do. So our preaching is going to highlight Jesus. Jesus is going to be the hero. Our music is going to highlight Jesus. Jesus is going to be the hero. Our, our different groups, all of what we study, when we gather together, it's not because we have some ideology that we share, but it's the gospel which we're all holding on to. And you have to fight for that. You have to stand for that. You have to stand for that. If you've been in churches for a long time or maybe even a short amount of time, there will be times when that gospel centeredness will be tested. That who you are as a church, what is the driving force of what you do? Is it a certain program? Is it a certain pet doctrine? Or is it the person and work of Jesus? I know for us, even as a small church, We've had to take stands 
that we are going to stand together with, with one mind and his, under one spirit to keep the gospel the driving force of what we do. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit. <clears throat> In the movie 300, uh, which I don't recommend, by the way. I know some of you are like, where are you going with this? I don't recommend. There's some certain content issues I don't recommend. But what the movie 300 is about is it's a quasi-historical account of a king, King Leonidas of Sparta, who is, is trying to stop this Persian army from invading Greece. Right? It, it took place in around 480 uh, B.C. Now, King Leonidas, being basically the king of Sparta, he wanted to make a stand. So he took 300, that's where the, the, the title 300 comes from, 300 of his best Spartan soldiers, and they went to this pass known as the Pass of Thermopylae. Right? It was this, kind of this corridor that you would have to go through in, in order to enter into Greece. Now, what these 300 Spartans did is they went to this corridor and they made a stand against the world's greatest army at that time, the Persian Empire. Right? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers were coming into Greece. And they, these 300 men were going to take a stand. Take a stand. And now you've seen the movie, you would know that one of the, the ways that this, these Spartan soldiers had so much success because they, they took a stand for three days against hundreds of thousands of soldiers with 300 men. The way that they were able to do that is because Spartan soldiers always fought together. They used their shields and their swords to form this impenetrable bubble that no amount of arrows, no amount of other attacks uh, could get through. And it wasn't because the strength of one soldier, but it was the strength of those 300 men that were creating this past that was impenetrable. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. When you stand together, right, when you see that your life is not just for your protection, but also for the protection of those who are around you. Paul is encouraging the church, if you want to show the worthiness of the gospel, be on defense and protect the gospel against, alongside those who are next to you. Make sure that you're encouraging them in that. Make sure that if there are certain lies that are beginning to come into their own minds and their own hearts, or maybe there's things that are in culture that are just antithetical to what we believe and what the, what the scriptures teach us, that you would take a stand and say, we're going we're gonna to stick together on this. We're not going to let culture win. We're not going to let radical individualism win, win but we are going to stand together in this. So Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, right? One anchor. But then he goes on in verse 27, it says, with one mind and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So to be a Christian then to a world that's watching is not just meant to be on defense, but also striving side by side with one another. Striving side by side with one another. I know, buddy. <laughs> so not only then do we take stands when necessary, but we also link arms and we move things forward. <clears throat> now that word strive in the, in the Greek, it's the Greek word senathleo. It's where we get the, our English word athlete or athletic. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, when I thought about a Christian, I did not think athlete, okay? It's just my experience. 
And most of the time, because to be a Christian, it seemed like it was just to be passive, right? To be kind of sitting on your hands, not really doing anything, and just kind of waiting for Jesus to come back. But that's not what Paul talks about, of what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. It means to be striving together. Not to be soft, but to, to be more of an athlete, to be more of a soldier, who is moving in a way that advances the gospel. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when Paul says that everything that happens in your life, Christian, is meant to be for the advancement of the gospel, whether it's to your coworkers, to your friends, to your family, or maybe even your own heart. But that's not an isolated thing. That's not an individual thing. Paul says you do that with one another. You strive together for that. You strive together. Jude, in his, his short little epistle that you'll find towards the end of your Bible, he says this to encourage the church in Jude 1.3. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Strive, contend. Church, walking with Christ, being a follower of Jesus is meant to be forward. It's not just to sit and wait for Jesus to come back, but they're striving together. That means we step into a world that maybe be radically against us. That might be stepping into a workplace that you're not quite sure exactly what it looks like to be a Christian, but you want to be faithful in that. Then you, maybe you consult those who are walking with you. Ask them, how can I be faithful in this circumstance? How can I be faithful in this position? How can I be faithful with these family members? You're striving together. You're not meant to live the Christian life on your own. It's meant to be lived with others. So we strive side by side, serve together. We give together, right? We sacrifice together. We don't join a church just so we can do our own thing. You join a church so you can strive with one another towards the same goal, towards the same goal. When we walk through the book of Titus now, quite a while ago, uh, Titus makes mention of this healthy church where older men were pouring into younger men. Younger men were learning from these older men. Older women were pouring into younger women, and, and younger women were listening and being encouraged by these older women. And what we pointed out when we walked through that text is that's what a healthy church looks like. Not one that everybody's coming in, just kind of do their own thing, but one that we all want to move in the same direction. So maybe you find yourself maybe further along than others, right? It's like, I don't need to go to another Bible study. I don't need to join a community group. I don't need to be a part of a discipleship group. I've been there. I've done that. That's great. Praise God for that. But maybe there's people that need you in that group. Maybe if you're so mature, you can help us who are immature, right? Or maybe if you're immature and you think, Right, because this is, this is the, the kind of worldview of my generation that we can figure this out on our own. We actually don't need to learn from people that have walked before us. We need to repent of that and say, no, I can learn from those who have walked with Jesus faithfully for years. I can learn from them. This is what striving side by side looks like, church. No other place in the world do you see this camaraderie, this unity, even in service clubs that we have in our valley, which we have a lot of great ones, usually those are broken down based off of generational lines because there's not a willingness to strive for one purpose. One purpose. This is where the church can be unique. It can stand out. 
and as it should be, as it was meant to, that pillar and buttress of truth which the church is. Church, I cannot tell you how beneficial it can be from simply striving alongside with other brothers and sisters in the faith. But let's keep going. Look at verse 28. Paul then says, and don't be frightened and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation in that from God. So what is Paul talking about? What is Paul talking about there? Right? What is this sign, right? There's, there's a sign for some that's going to destroy them, but for some it's going to be salvation. This dual sign. What are we talking about, Paul? Well, go back to how Paul started. He started with the gospel. And who's at the center of the gospel, church? Jesus. Jesus is the sign. He's the sign because there's two groups of people. There's two groups of people. There's two races, if you will. There's those who are in Adam, those who are still in their sin. There's those who are in Christ. And when Jesus comes back, the scripture is clear that when he comes back, he's no longer giving grace out, but he's giving out judgment. He's destroying. He's allowing those who have not turned and trusted to him to now pay the penalty for their sins on their own. And that is eternal judgment. So he's going to destroy them. That's the sign of destruction. So if Jesus is the sign of destruction for those who have not believed in him, what is Jesus then for those who have believed in him? The sign of salvation. The sign of salvation. So this dual sign, it's about Jesus. It's about him. He is the sign. And know that God is a just judge and he will not let one sin go unpunished. And so we can trust him in that. We can trust him in that. But also humbly know that we need him. We need him desperately. <clears throat> so Paul's saying, Christian, you don't have to be frightened. You don't have to be frightened. Because what's the worst that can happen to you? Remember what Paul said? To live as Christ and to die is what? Gain. Right? So if the sign of destruction or the sign of salvation comes back, you don't, have to, you don't have to be afraid of that day, right? Even if there's all the uncertainties, because Christians sometimes lose their mind about what those last days will look like, right? Despite everything which the Bible tells us of what they look like, you're not going to know, and you can trust that it's going to be a sign of your salvation. So you don't have to worry about all the intricacies or the complexities or the details in it. Yes, we can study our Bibles and we can be faithful stewards of that. But at the end of the day, the sign is of our salvation. That's the hope which we have. That's what we're looking forward to. So Paul says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. This is great. Paul just keeps building upon this anticipation then. This building upon what it means to live a life in the gospel. And he says this in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now there's two things which then Paul just told us that he's granted to his people. Two things. Did you catch it? One is belief. The other is suffering. But let's, let's talk about belief because that's something that we don't normally talk about at times. That the reason that you are a Christian, right, is not because you prayed a sinner's prayer. Or it's not because you walked the aisle. It's not because that, you know, you raised your hand in a church service. The reason why you believe in Jesus 
and believe that he was that, that substitutionary toner that went to the cross on your behalf. The reason why you believe that, and this is really important, is because God has granted to you that belief, that it was from him, that he allowed you to see that, right? We believe in a big God who's in complete control of all of salvation. And so what Paul is saying is, remember this, that your belief has been granted to you. Now, now you may have walked the aisle, or you have raised your hand, right, or, or prayed a sinner's prayer. Those aren't bad things. But the reason why you did that was not to earn salvation or to get salvation is because God has granted to you a belief in him. So you're just simply responding to that. You're responding to that. This is a glorious truth. That he's the one who changed your heart. He's the one that opened your eyes. He's the one that did everything. He's the one that before the foundation of the world said, you are mine. And in my own timing, my own ways, I'm going to open your eyes to what I have done for you. But that's not just what, that's the only thing in which God has granted to us, right? If he's granted belief, he's also granted suffering in this. Now, why would those go hand in hand, right? Why would Paul basically say, hey, by the way, your belief has been granted to you. And by the way, I'm also going to grant that you suffer, right? How, how could that be good news? Well, suffering, suffering is good news if you know that there's a God who's in complete control, right? We talked about this the last couple of weeks. That the only way that you will see suffering as not just vanity, not just some kind of random act, something that nobody has control over, is if you know the God who is in control over everything, including your own salvation. If he's in charge of your belief, he's in charge of what you're walking through right now. And, may, and he, just as he granted to you belief, he also granted to you suffering. Now, we don't like to think about it in that way, do we? Right? Usually, we spend our whole lives trying to avoid suffering. Right? We do everything in, which, in our power to avoid any type of suffering in this world. But what this text just told us is that it was actually granted to you by Jesus. Now, why would Jesus grant suffering? Right? Why would he do that? Why would that not just be, you know, something random that happened, but rather the very time or or peace that god has wanted you to walk through in this moment of your life why would he do that because you get more of him you get more of him and paul's going to talk about this a lot as we walk through the book of philippians that when you suffer church when things are stripped away when when everything else which you're standing upon fades away except for that solid rock of jesus what do you get more of you get more of him you always get more of him. Suffering is never in vain. It always is pointing to him. And Jesus told us this would happen. He told us if we walk with him, this is what it's going to look like. When we walk through the book of Mark, right, that, that account of Jesus' life, this is what Jesus said to his disciples in Mark eight thirty four. Let me remind you of this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus told his disciples then, which is true for them and true of every single disciple after, that if you're going to follow him, there's going to be some cost involved. 
there's going to be some suffering involved, and it's actually going to be granted to you by Jesus. The cost of denying yourself daily. For what end? For the sake of Christ. So to follow Jesus then, right, to follow Christ then, it's going to cost you. And here's, and here's just a pastoral question then. If following Jesus is not costing you anything, then are you following him? Then are you following him? Now, what does it mean then? What, is it, what, what kind of cost are we talking about? What kind of suffering is Paul talking about in this moment? Right? Do we all have to go to prison? Right? Do we all have to get beaten up for the gospel? Is that, is that the suffering which we must all endure? No, I don't think so. Even though many Christians even today are doing just that. But it will mean laying down things that you may think that you have a right to. That you may have a right to. But you're going to lay those things down for the sake of following Christ and to show a watching world that your life is not all about you, but it's about somebody else. It's about the one who made you alive in him. That made, t- took away even when you were dead in your sin, that made you alive in Christ, that you're going to reflect that in the way that you live your life. And so it may cost you. It may cost you in your priorities. Not doing the things that you simply want to do, but doing things that you know will serve others and serve the God in whom you love. Or your finances. Maybe even certain careers. You know, I can't tell you what following Christ looks like in every single one of your situations this morning. But I can tell you that one of the evidences of following Christ is it's going to cost you something to do it. It's going to cost you something. So Paul has been repeatedly telling the church, suffering in this world then, suffering in this world is not undercutting the will of God in your life. Right? It's, it's not like God had this plan for you and then all of a sudden this suffering is blindsiding God and it's also blindsiding you. But that suffering in walking with Christ, we may not know all the details, but we can trust him in it because it was granted to us by him in the way that our, even our belief was. So do you suffer for Christ? Right? Does following Christ have any tangible effects on your pattern of life? Because when you do, and I can assure you of this, church, when you do, when you choose to be the man or choose to be the woman, which God has created you to be, there's going to be a cost to that. There's going to be a cost to that. Right? The culture might think that you're crazy, bigoted, many different things. They might think that you're crazy in the way that you parent. Right? Maybe you think that you're crazy in the way that you spend your money. Maybe think that you're crazy in the way that you invest in others rather than just always investing in yourself. There's going to be a cost. And what Paul is saying, that cost is not to earn the gospel, but to a world that's watching, show the worthiness of that gospel. Show that all those other things, they, they fail in comparison to the glory of God in which whom, Christian, you get to have. You get to have. And if you're not a Christian, this is why we do the things we do. It's not because we just think it's a a good idea to randomly get together and to to give a lot of our money away and to come together and sing and to serve each other. It's not just something random what we all decided to do one Sunday morning. But it's because the gospel has been so important to us. 
what Jesus has done has been so radically impacted in our life that we are willing to sacrifice all kinds of things for the sake of proclaiming Jesus. That's why we do the things we do. And that's what we want for you. That's what we want for you. So we suffer. And that's coming. It's promised. We suffer for the sake of who, though? For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of the worthiness of the gospel. I know, I know even as I say this, it can rub against so many different ways in which you have been taught how to live. Right? Even, even when it comes to God or Christianity, that really what, what Jesus wants is you just to always be blessed, to always be happy. And so to have any type of suffering in your life is, is going against what God wants for you. So you have to do something to get back into being happy or being blessed in you know, a, a tangible, material way. But church... Maybe, maybe we take the word for what it is and see that suffering is really the fast lane in which we get more of Christ. Suffering has been granted to us, not to avoid at all costs, but maybe to embrace. Not with full details of how we actually know how it's all going to work out, but to trust in the one who gave it to us. So Christian. As your life promotes the gospel then, right? As you live out the reality of belonging to this family. As you stand for it, strive for it, suffer for it. Let it point you to the one who has saved you. Let it point to the worthiness of the gospel. Look at verse 30, where Paul ends this section. He says that you're going to be engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now here that I still have. Paul's saying, I'm still suffering. You know this about me. But it's not in vain. Nothing in what God does is ever in vain. It's never meaningless. It's always purposeful. Even those darkest days. Because you know that this is not your home. This is not the end. You know the end. If you read the last book of the Bible, if you read the book of Revelation, you know that God wins in the end. And so whatever comes in this life, we take it with joy. We take it, know that it's going to point to the sign of our salvation. We don't have, let me put it this way. I know many of you are concerned about, you know, where things are going on in in our country, in our world. You're very concerned. I get that. I absolutely get that. But I don't want you to lose hope of, of the person who is your hope. The one who's not unchanged by the things that are going on, right? I think we often hear sometimes that the gospel is under attack or the gospel is in jeopardy, right? The gospel is being threatened. Now, I know what they're trying to say that for maybe the gospel centrality of others is being threatened, but know that if the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done, accomplished, then it cannot be threatened, right? It cannot be changed, it's done. And so we can embrace whatever this world is coming to with joyful hearts, not in our circumstances, but in our God who loves us and has died for us and is coming back for us. And we all can do that then with this new heart that's been given to us. 
can you see the grace of suffering with a new heart? It would be one thing if God just said, hey, you're going to suffer, and I'm not going to do anything about it. You're just going to have to figure it out on your own. But God has given you a new heart, a new hope, that when you suffer, you get more of him. You will always get more of him. And that is a gift, that our suffering is accompanied by hope. What a gift that is, church. So it took us about six, seven weeks, six weeks, to walk through chapter one. But I hope what you see, I hope what you see is that we worship a big God, right? We worship a God who despite whatever is going on in the world or going on in our individual lives, that God is not absent from it. And that you can trust him in that. Now next week, as we jump into chapter two, I think Paul's going to talk a little bit more about what life in the gospel looks like inside these walls to encourage us. But as we go out today, know that life in the gospel was purposeful. We get to show the worthiness of what, what Jesus has done. What a gift that is. So let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray for us. And then we'll just move into a time of response. But go ahead and just pray with me now. Well, Father, I thank you. I thank you that we have a gospel that can never be threatened, ultimately. That the good news of what you have done cannot be changed. But God, I pray, I pray this morning, I pray for each person in this room that they would be able to, to walk out of here just with the desire to live a life manner in a manner worthy of the gospel. And God, I even pray for those in this room that maybe don't know you or don't know where they're at at their walk with you. That maybe today, maybe this morning, that you took that gift, that gift, that, that granted gift of belief in you and that you, you gave that to them and that they're able to see who they are outside of you and the joyous hope that they can have in you. 